I'm Kate Daniels. Some of the leading news stories in recent months and recent years have involved the police and, most generally, in not the best circumstances, police shootings of civilians. New York City had this happening to a serious level about 20 years ago, and a lot has improved. Charlie Campisi has written about this and more in his book, Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. Charlie Campisi was the longest-serving chief of the NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau, an elite unit tasked to investigate fellow officers suspected of misconduct. It's really a compelling read, perhaps in part because we can certainly feel the relevance in our lives today. Let's meet Charlie and get some insights. Charles Campisi, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you. It's certainly my pleasure to talk to you this morning. I am so really happy that you're able to join us and really grateful that you have written this book, Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. Uh, it's it's a tough thing, yet very important. And I think uh, today we would find there's probably a great deal of relevance in reading what you write and having a, a greater understanding, which I think is important. Well, I agree. And one of the reasons that uh, I decided to write the book was that there were so many misconceptions about internal affairs uh, how they operate, what they do, their investigative techniques, not only within the general public, but sometimes within the police department itself. Because by, by nature of internal affairs work, it's kind of secretive. We can't share information with uh, other officers while our investigations are going on. And certainly we can't share information uh, to the general public through the media uh, because our investigations are ongoing. We're sometimes constricted with grand jury regulations, and most of the time we're working with a prosecutor who uh, needs as much secrecy as possible so that when they make their presentation to a grand jury or they uh, are going to trial, that there isn't uh, a lot of information out there, correct or misinformation, that may sway somebody's uh, objective opinion. So there's, there needs to be this great deal of, well, secrecy, just uh, protecting everyone involved, right? That's correct, and protecting the, the integrity of the investigation and eventually the prosecution. And in terms of the people who work for internal affairs, are they known by the other police officers uh, uh, across the whole region, or is that also kept as, uh, as much under taps as possible? Well, the, the people who are selected to work in internal affairs are known because they come from the ranks of the police department. And we did that for a very good reason. We find that they have the most experience, uh, the most knowledge of investigations and the workings, the inner workings of the police department. So when we first started internal affairs back in 1993, the idea was who works in internal affairs? Who is the typical internal investigator? So we did focus groups and we asked police officers throughout New York City, of all ranks, of all assignments. And there were like six, 700 police officers when we were finished doing interviews. And something that came out in our interviews was that they really didn't have a very high opinion of the internal investigator. They thought of them in three basic ways. One, that they were cowards. They were afraid to be real police officers, so they went and they hid in internal affairs and made good cops' lives miserable. The second is that they were thieves. 
that they got caught doing something wrong. Their hand was caught in the cookie jar, and now they become rats to save themselves by testifying and, and investigating good cops. And the third would be a zealot, someone who wants to change the world and doesn't care how they do it. Now, that was probably not true, but that was their perception. So we changed the way people came into internal affairs. And the way we did it is a selection process. I myself was selected to work in internal affairs by then Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly. So we went about changing everybody who worked in internal affairs. We sent them back to other police duties, and we selected or draft the most talented, the most experienced, people who were the most well thought of in the police department to come in and conduct internal investigations. We went back a couple of years later and we interviewed different people, but basically the question was the same, who works in internal affairs? And we got an entirely 180 degree uh, different answer. The answer was some of the more talented people in the police department, the people who we stole. They used words like, you stole my best investigator. You kidnapped my best supervisor. So the perception changed, and it's very important to have that perception so that other police officers will cooperate with internal affairs when it becomes necessary. And you yourself, uh, early on in your career, had a, a bit of a run-in with the Internal Affairs Department as it was at that time, and I think you felt at that time, there's no way I'd ever be part of this. That's correct. It goes back to a, a case from 1978, and I term it in my book as the great Christmas tree caper of 1978. And I didn't think the Internal Affairs particularly did a good job, and I certainly did not think they treated me well, and I don't think their best interest was uh, looking out for uh, the department. They were just going through the motions. And at that time, I said, number one, I'm never going to go to Internal Affairs. Little did I know that the philosophy would change and I would be drafted. And if I ever went to internal affairs, I'd make sure that people were treated fairly. So that really, my focus when I got there was uh, changed by that incident. And that probably even makes it that much uh, stronger a case for your having been part of it because of having that personal experience, that personal run-in. I believe so. I think that, that helped my decision-making process as I went along. So you have been, or were, when you were in that position, uh, I guess the really the longest one in that office that's uh, ever been, and it was really significant, uh, both, I think, for your career, but really in terms of the work that was done. Oh, I would think so. See, I spent 41 years with the New York City Police Department. The first 20, I was a patrol officer in various ranks and positions and doing a variety of different functions when I was drafted into the Internal Affairs Bureau. And I was drafted, and like everyone else, for a short period of time, at least that's what it was believed. And I eventually uh, was promoted to the chief of the Internal Affairs, and I stayed there for 17 and a half years. So that's a, a really long-term in service, so a, a great deal of experience. And it's Great to read what it was like for you to get your, your history in Blue on Blue because uh, you you might even be what they would call he, he bleeds blue because being a police officer was so important for you from a young age and you just really believed in having great integrity in the work that you were doing. 
I can remember my earliest recollections is I always wanted to be a police officer. Uh, I dreamed of it. I, I worked towards it. And when it became a reality, it was uh, uh, you know, a life's dream come true. And, and those are such wonderful stories. And this, uh, the New York uh, Police Department, is probably, I would guess, the largest in the country, uh, it, the tens of thousands of officers that are part of this great team, right? Oh, that's true. The, the NYPD, when you add everybody uh, in, its, in its service, comes to over 50,000 people. Right now there's about 36, maybe 37 sworn officers, you know, police officers, and then there's a commitment of civilian and staff personnel that uh, help the police officers do their job every day. So when you have 50,000 employees, the odds are that you're going to have some that are going to be problematic, people who are going to betray their oath of office, people who are going to uh, engage in criminal conduct. Uh, and to that vein, the Internal Affairs Bureau of the NYPD grew at our highest level to 750 people, 750 investigators. And that's the the point here is that when you're dealing with such vast numbers and even small numbers, there's always going to be something that we might call the bad apple. But in that case, it's a very small percentage of all these people, isn't it? Oh, that's absolutely true. You see, my experience from around the country is that the overwhelming majority, maybe 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of police officers are honest, hardworking, dedicated men and women who come to work every day to do a very difficult job. Uh, and there's that very small percentage, and it's that small percentage that steals the headlines away from the good work that police officers do. And it's those are the people that form the consciousness of the general public. They don't remember a good thing that a police officer does, and even if it happened across the country, they remember that a police officer was involved in a controversial shooting or in a case where a police officer was involved in, in assaulting an individual or committed a heinous crime. That's what they remember. So it kind of takes away from that hard work that most officers uh, do. Put that to the fact with the secrecy of internal affairs, it makes it even more difficult. So what I was hoping to do in this book is to take a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, look at the, the, the cases from the perspective of an internal investigator. And I highlighted some very important cases, some very noteworthy and newsworthy cases, to try to get those points across uh, and to tell the story of internal affairs from the insider's perspective, and this way giving people an opportunity to see what really goes on. And talking about some of the cases then that you share here, and we see what the statistics used to be, there really has been a great change in having the IAB involved now. Oh, absolutely. And I, I attribute that to our change in focus. See, most internal investigative units are very reactive. They react to citizens' complaints. They wait for an incident to happen. And they do a good job of investigating it, but they're investigating it after the fact. What we tried to do is we tried to be very proactive. We tried to find the problems before they became the headlines. So we did things like integrity testing which was not necessarily uh, viewed by the officers as the greatest thing because no one wants to be tested, no one wants to be second-guessed. Uh, and we try not to second-guess officers. We try to give them situations where they can perform or not perform. They're given complete freedom to, 
to be the officer that we know that they should be and that we know that they are. Uh, so our proactive approach, going out into the community and asking the community about problem officers uh, to try to find the problems, again, before they become the headlines. And in your awareness, is what you are doing being duplicated across the country uh, at all? Well, to, to a lesser extent, but again, mainly because of our size, we worked very closely with police departments throughout the world. As a matter of fact, some of our programs have been adopted internationally. Uh, the, you know, the United States Department of State has uh, brought people into the United States to attend our courses and attend our training and to get a, a firsthand view of this proactive approach to internal investigations. And we're seeing other police departments around the country, large departments, small departments, state agencies, you know, county agencies, we see them adapting some of these methods uh, and finding great success with it. So that is encouraging that they are looking to you where there has been the success. I mean, we have to really acknowledge that there was a drastic change and a, a real drop in, in shootings and murders that happened uh, in New York State, in New York City, really specifically, um, as the your AAB became really much more focused and entrenched. Well, we worked. See, that's one of the benefits of having an internal affairs bureau that's part of the police department instead of apart from the police department. So we can, you know, we, we have the knowledge of the operations of the police department. We know the, the inner workings, and we're able to work with them in reducing corruption and, and misconduct. Sometimes agencies try to do it from the outside, and they have greater difficulty. So looking across the country and thinking about what's gone on uh, in New York City, and some of the controversial shootings that have happened, you know, the tragedies, do you have an opinion about that? I don't want to really make this political in any way, but is there a way, is there a need for more IAB in those various areas across the country? Well, see, what happens with the, the shootings, and I bring this all down to uh, a better awareness of alternate means of use of force. In the controversial shootings that we've had around the country, many of them, most of them, uh, the true facts don't come out until it's too late, and people have jumped to conclusions. Uh, when the facts come out, the facts are now blurred by the perception people had from the very beginning. So what we did in New York is we tried to prevent as many of these incidents from occurring as we could. And even with our best efforts, we still had cases where the shootings are very controversial and the incidents are, are very heart-wrenching. Uh, but what we did is we started to train our officers in the, the less than traditional means of uh, use of firearms and use of force. Number one, we gave them alternatives. We tried to give them you know, uh, chemical sprays. Uh, we tried to give them uh, different tools that the the use of the firearm would be the last resort. But I'll be the first one to tell you that our use of force continuum, as we call it, which starts with verbal commands, it goes to uh, less than lethal force, and builds up to lethal force if it becomes necessary. Sometimes that whole use of force continuum can occur in a matter of seconds, and the officer, him or herself, is offered no alternative but to use their firearm. And we used to emphasize the firearm should be your last resort. 
but understanding that that last resort may come in a matter of quick seconds. Yes, those kinds of things do unfold really split second, don't they? Yes, they do. And the unfortunate thing is and then it would take weeks, maybe months, for uh, the true facts to come out after the investigation is completed. And by that time, the, the consciousness of the not only the police, but the public in general, uh, has already formed their opinions. Exactly. So looking at the book, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops, here this is filled with personal experience, lots of great stories that I think give us a good insight, good explanations and understandings of what it's gone on, and I think um, probably it was your your hope too, Charles, that we would then really come from a much more informed perspective about what goes on in the police department. Oh yes, absolutely. And what we tried to do is in each chapter, uh, I took examples to try to illustrate and explain how these things happen, how they can happen and what is needed to be done to prevent it in the future, but most importantly, to investigate it and investigate it uh, till we find the truth, what actually happened. And when we find the truth, we present the facts, and those facts are presented sometimes to a grand jury, sometimes to the public. And when we present those facts, we have to be able to say confidently that this is the truth as best we know it. The book Blue on Blue is really compelling reading. I, uh, I, I'm not sure if I feel it's so compelling. Well, it's good storytelling, so I think that's part of it. I also have a, a bit of a leaning towards a lot of the TV shows that have to deal with, uh, I guess, police drama. Uh, what is your feeling towards the way that police are portrayed? And Because there are so many of these shows on television. Well, the, the police are portrayed mostly well in these shows. The Internal Affairs Bureau, on the other hand, are very rarely portrayed in, in a positive light. As a matter of fact, they're, they're referred to as the rat squad. They're re- referred to as the dark side of the force. So they, uh, in these shows, and I guess that's what popular opinion is, uh, they deride the internal affairs function, uh, and they, they perpetuate the myth that, you know, the internal affairs is there just to hurt good cops, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, as a matter of fact, our job is to protect the good cops, but to prosecute if necessary and separate from the police department those cops who maybe didn't belong here in the first place, but those who committed crimes and have betrayed their oath of office. And. That is how it is portrayed, because Law & Order is one of those shows I I watch quite a lot. And I think of some of those where the uh, internal affairs is portrayed in them. And yes, there's such a a negative reaction. So that's why I think Blue on Blue kind of gives a a, a breath of fresh air to the whole scene. Well, that was our hope. Our hope was to uh, lift the veil of secrecy, to give people an insider's view of what really goes on and why the Internal Affairs Bureau is as important a function in policing as any other unit and how uh, it's designed to protect the agency by protecting the good cops, finding the truth, but removing the bad cops. And sometimes that's not an easy job. So thinking in terms of 
the people who become the bad cops, you go through such a rigorous um, evaluation process before you ever enter the academy. Have they kind of gotten in under the radar, or does something happen to them in the course of their work? Well, for the most part, they've gotten in under the radar. you got to remember, again, with the New York City Police Department, uh, we'll put a class in the academy that's over 1,000 members. So when you have 1,000 people entering any organization, you're going to have some people who, by nature, are going to be problematic. So we try very hard. The screening process is uh, very diligent in trying to find people. Not only do we do background checks, and as we all know, you know, absent a crystal ball, the best indicator of future performance is past performance. So we look heavily upon those people and what they've done in the past. We also do psychological testing to try to identify people who maybe are are intelligent, good people, but maybe just not fit for the stress and vigors of police work. And we do our very best to weed them out in the investigative hiring process. So every once in a while, some of them slip by. There's also a theory called the slippery slope theory, which says that sometimes good cops will start down a slippery slope of of uh, malfeasance and corruption, and then uh, grow into more serious corruption. Uh, We find that from time to time, but that's not really uh, the greatest number of problematic police officers are not victims of that slippery slope. There was something there that perhaps they hid, perhaps we missed, that maybe shouldn't be there in the first place. And also, when you're dealing with some young people, their backgrounds are, are limited, and we're hiring a lot of people from uh, different cultures, uh, different countries, and that's a good thing. Uh, The more diverse we can be, the better police we're going to be. Uh, We need people who speak a variety of languages, who understand the cultures of of different places. We need them, but sometimes the backgrounds are are missing key elements because it's very difficult to get that information. So my proposal always was the tie goes to the police department. If we can't say with confidence that this person is going to make a good police officer, well, it may be a tough thing for the individual, but for the agency, we have to go and benefit the agency and lean towards the department rather than the individual. So we need to do things like that. And say in the case of that, that someone might seem to be a good uh, person to have in the department, they're not going to pass the test the first time around, would they be able to perhaps do more qualifying in some way? Maybe it's uh, more education. Would they then be looked at again? Well, they would have to start the process all over again. And it would depend on the rationale of why we rejected them in the first place. There's only... Uh, a couple of automatic rejections. One would be a felony conviction. If you were convicted of a felony, you can't be a police officer in New York City. The second is if you were dishonorably discharged from the armed services, you cannot be a police officer in New York. And the third is if you fail one of our drug tests that go on during the investigative process. Those are the only three automatic uh, failures. The rest of them are based upon the totality of the circumstances everything that we can gather about that individual. So we try our very best. Sometimes our very best is not good enough. Now, this isn't necessarily about good cop, bad cop. This is just uh, uh, safety in general. Would you share, do you have an opinion about 
these really heavy-duty kinds of weapons, assault weapons, that people, the general public, is able to purchase and have in their hands. What does that do to with police work? Well, you never want to face uh, an opponent who is very heavily armed. That goes without saying. But most of the people who possess these weapons, as long as it's, it's, uh, it's done in accordance with the law, as long as it's done uh, accordance with the policies and procedures, uh, I can understand that. However, I would not want to have to go up against an individual who's very heavily armed. And we've seen a couple of cases uh, around the country where people who should not have gotten these guns, people who had uh, obtained these guns uh, illegally, have used them. Uh, and that's our process. We're, we're, we're a country of law. And if our laws are adhered to, uh, the problems will be diminished. They'll never go away, but they'll be diminished. So... In the book, Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops, important, great stories, important insights for all of us, the general public, to understand. And I really appreciate the story near the end of the book. You were still with the force. You were working. You were in New York City on September 11th. Yes, I was. I heard the first plane hit. I saw the second plane hit. And I was down at ground zero when the towers collapsed. Probably the worst day of my life uh, to see the carnage and uh, the loss of life. Uh, it, was, it, it was a day of, of, of terrible action and of great action. Because never before had I seen or witnessed people come together for one single purpose, to save other people. So what started out as a... Uh, an attack on, on, on the country, an attack on freedom, uh, became uh, a great time for, for, for the city to come together and work hard. I mean, we'll, the loss of life was devastating. And I remember at the, you know, a couple of days afterwards, I was charged with, with keeping track of who was missing and who was dead, you know, working with the medical examiners and all, and keeping a list of uh, the people who were missing and that was an enormous task, and we worked very hard at it. And each time we were able to find someone that had not perished, that they were, you know, they made it out, and they were they were safe. There was joy. There was uh, adulation. People were. We had a bell that we would ring the bell to declare another person found. Uh, and it was a terrible day, but a great day because it was the, you know, a great rescue operation. And everybody, no matter where they came from, no matter what their religion or, or culture or or what they looked like, they all came together and joined hands, and it became a, a day of unity and a, a terrible, terrible tragedy, and I'll never forget it. And I can, I can see it in my mind's eye uh, day after day, but it, it was a, a wonderful experience to be part of the, the rescue and then the recovery efforts. And what was so interesting too your younger son was there at that time as well and of course that would have been a great concern or a huge stress for you and such a relief when you saw that he was fine it was it was incredible because i know he used to travel to work and he used to get off the, the train at the world trade center station just about the time of the uh, of the uh, the first uh, uh, plane hitting and I hadn't seen him because he was a, a member of the police department, a civilian member, but I hadn't seen him. And as I was rushing down to uh, Ground Zero, as it came to be known, I saw him coming from 
of the World Trade Center site, and it was an incredible feeling to see him. And like the weight of the world lifted off my shoulders, and then I said, okay, time to roll up our sleeves and let's get in there. Yes. So phenomenal stories. This book is just filled with them. They're important for us to really have a good, a better understanding of what goes on in policing with police officers. Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. It's a really a terrific read and, of course, available to any of our favorite book sources. Correct, Charles? Yes, that's true. It's, it should be on the shelves and it should be available online. All your listeners have to do is type in uh, Blue on Blue, Charles Campisi, and uh, they'll be directed to where they can get the book. Terrific. Well, Charles, this has been a most informative and insightful time to spend with you. Of course, much too short, but I really appreciate that you've taken time with us. Thank you for all your service, all your great work, and your contribution to our society. Well, certainly my pleasure. It's something I lived for, and I'm just happy to be, be a part of it. Well, many thanks. Thank you so very much.